continue in Genesis, the first three chapters, uh, looking uh, at a passage we looked at last week, but now from a different angle, uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, considering the first marriage, and uh, there a marriage made in the garden, and um, last week we looked at what it means to be made in God's images, male and female, and um, what the Bible has to teach on gender. Uh, Tom prayed that tonight's topic is difficult and relevant, so was last week's. Um, tonight we're talking about sexuality, and it's, of course, uh, difficult in part because it's relevant, because we can't escape what the world is saying about human sexuality, and uh, we need to be prepared to have an answer. It's difficult also because uh, we... Um, undoubtedly, know people, we, we love people, people in our own families that are struggling with these things, have a different perspective on these things than us, hold to these views strongly, and I might even venture to say there are some in, our, in this room who um, uh, have those similar struggles, whether um, it's in the view that they take or um, in the bent of their heart, but we want to come now together and submit to God's word and to hear what he says. And so even... With difficult texts, we have a very strong spirit who will lead us, and that's our hope. As we look at Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." You recall last time we said the Hebrew words there are very similar. Isha, woman, Isha, because she's taken out of Ish, man. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, on Tuesday, undoubtedly you have heard President Biden signed into law what is uh, titled the Respect for Marriage Act which requires the U.S. federal government and all U.S. states and territories to recognize the validity of same-sex marital unions. Um, often when a president signs uh, something into law, there's um, uh, some media coverage. There'll be some dignitaries standing behind him at his desk, people that helped um, get that uh, legislation passed, uh, standing there in the Oval Office. But this event was different. They took the desk out to the front lawn. There was lights. There was a concert. Uh, a celebration and a production that would have made Hollywood envious. And the president signed the law, um, uh, signed this into law with a live performance of Cindy Lauper's hit song, True Colors, acting as the background soundtrack. Now, ironically, surrounding Biden at that moment uh, were, well, people that you would expect to see, uh, leaders in, in that uh, Democratic political party. Uh, and yet, uh, I'm talking about people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. They were people who were instrumental in the passing of the Defense of Marriage Act back in the 90s, which this uh, Respect for Marriage Act repealed. 
1993, signed by President Clinton, the Defense of Marriage Act banned federal regulations on same-sex marriage. It was passed overwhelmingly by the 104th Congress of the United States with endorsements from now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, um, outgoing uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and yes, even now President Joe Biden. This is what the Defense of Marriage Act reads in part. This is what was just um, overturned. Quote, in determining the meaning of any act of Congress or of any ruling, regulation, or interpretation of the various administrative bureaus and agencies of the United States, the word marriage means only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife, and the word spouse refers only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. So less than 30 years later, now this is what our federal law reads. Quote, For the purposes of any federal law, rule, or regulation in which marital status is a factor, an individual shall be considered married if that individual's marriage is between two individuals and is valid in the state where the marriage was entered into, or in the case of a marriage entered into outside any state, if the marriage is between two individuals and is valid in the place where it was entered into, and the marriage could have been entered into a state. Now, notice... A single, there's not a single mention of one man or one woman now, but just two individuals. Um, one of those sounds a lot, look, a lot more like Genesis, which we just read a few minutes ago. And just keep in mind, this took that less than 30 years for this transformation. Um, and not just for something to be changed, but to be celebrated. Uh, nothing less than a revolution of morals. And some people want us, and by us I mean conservative, Bible-believing um, Christians, just to get over ourselves already. Um, E.J. Dion, he was a, he's a columnist for the Washington Post. He posed this question the other day, and this is the question is in the title of the article. Uh, a question to conservative Christians on gay marriage. Why draw the line here? And maybe some of you are wondering the same thing. Why do we make such a big stink about this? Um, and the answer, quite simply, is that the Bible draws the line here. And we see that right from the beginning. Genesis has clear teaching for us on sexuality and how it's to be used for God's glory. So uh, we want to submit to that tonight. First, let's consider from Genesis 2 the blueprint for sexuality, God's design for sexuality, the blueprint of it. Uh, And what I mean by that is is that as we look at Genesis 2 and and Genesis 1 also, um, where man's creating God's image, we can piece together certain details that teach us something about what God's plan is for our sexuality. And um, the pervading principle is that sexuality is meant to be expressed in the marital union of one man and one woman. I think four components, though, are drawn out. So first is this, and this one is foundational. Our, sexual, or our sexuality is not our identity. Our sexuality is not our identity. Better yet, our, se- our sexuality is subservient to our identity. And our identity is defined in Genesis 1 as being images, uh, image bearers of God. That's our identity. We are theological creatures before we are biological creatures. There's something God, uh, something, go- um, something that 
that is of God in us before there's something about our physicality or our body. We're theological before we're biological. And with the rise of identity politics today, we find people are desperate to find certain categories where they can define themselves, where they can be classified, understood, and valued. And thanks to Freud, especially, sexuality is perhaps the primary way people in our day and age uh, define themselves, or they think they ought to define themselves. Rosaria Butterfield, who has written very helpfully on this topic, she says this, if I self-define as heterosexual or homosexual, everything, including even non-sexual affection, is subsumed by this new humanity of sexuality. So we all need to resist the desire to define ourselves by our feelings, our sexual feelings, and instead we define ourselves by the facts of God's words, never our feelings, but God's facts. And so the call to repentance is a call to reject the lie that our sexuality defines us, whether we are straight or if we are gay. It doesn't matter. We submit to the authority of God's word in order to learn who we really are and who we are as we are image bearers of God. Now, while we can't allow sexual desire to define us, it doesn't mean that we don't have sexual desires. And these desires are actually given from God. That means they're a good thing, and it also means there's a proper outlet for them, and that is in the marital union of man and woman. So that's the second part of this blueprint we're putting together. The first thing is that our sexuality is not our identity. The second thing, though, is our sexuality is best expressed in the marriage of man and woman. Verse 24, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So second, second element here that we're putting together is that our sexuality is, is only to be expressed um, in the marriage of a man and a woman. Third, beyond the example given of Adam and Eve in that first marriage, the description of this union being one flesh tells us that marriage can only be for a man and a woman. It's not just that it should be. It only can be. Marriage defined the way the Bible defines it, the way that God designs it, can only be between a man and a woman. And the reason, it's not just because the first marriage was between a man and a woman. It's not only for that reason. It's also because marriage is described as a one flesh union. Two are brought together as one. And more than that being a poetic expression of the commitment uh, that is meant to be, um, or that uh, meant to be expressed in the marital union, more than being expression of nearness or fidelity, one flesh is a euphemism for sex. That's literally what, what is being talked about here. Paul makes that point explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written... The two will become one flesh. So he's mad at the Corinthians because they're sleeping around with prostitutes. And he says, when you do that, you become one flesh. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that one flesh doesn't just mean you're chummy with somebody, you're really good friends, you're loyal to somebody. It means you enter into a sexual union with them. So this, this one enfleshment, if we could call it that, it's unique to sexual intimacy, mere physical contact, um, holding hands with somebody, hugging someone, that doesn't make you enter into a, a one flesh union. Um, it's sexual intimacy that does that. But more specifically, it is only heterosexual activity that does this. By God's design, men and women have the anatomical capacity to receive each other's bodies. So it's not just a relational union, it's an organic union. The female body complements the male body in that way. 
And in fact, the reality that the woman was made from man, from the body of the man, draws him all the more closely to her in this way. This is what Kevin DeYoung writes. He says, what makes the woman unique is both that she is like the man, which is expressed in the statement, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but that she's also differentiated from the man. The text has sameness and difference in view. Adam delights that the woman's not another animal and also not another man. She is exactly what the man needs, a suitable helper, equal to the man, but also his opposite. She is an isha taken out of ish, a new creation fashioned from the side of man to be something other than a man. The ish and the isha can become one flesh because, here it is, theirs is not just a sexual union, but a reunion, the bringing together of two differentiated beings with one made from and both made for the other. Let me repeat that last part because I think it's so helpful. He says, the Ish and the Isha, man and woman, can become one flesh because theirs is not just a sexual union, but a reunion. The bringing together of two differentiated beings, the one made from, that's the woman, but both being made for the other. And um, similarly, the command for the man to cling to his wife that we read there in, in verse 24. Again, that's freighted with sexual meaning. It implies loyalty. It implies faithfulness. It implies fidelity, commitment. But how is that loyalty, faithfulness, fidelity, commitment to be displayed? Through sex, through intercourse. So the point of marriage is not just about fidelity. And if it were only about fidelity, then a case for so-called homosexual marriage could be made. And this is the case that many people are trying to make. So this is Biden from this past week. Quote, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal to that person you love? It's not more complicated than that. And the law recognizes now that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves. Unquote. Well, perhaps, all respect to President Biden, maybe it is more complicated than just that, than just being faithful, than just being committed, than just being loyal. A man cannot cling to another man, nor can a woman cling to another woman the way that Genesis 2 envisions, not in a way that makes the two become one flesh. And it's important for us to keep that in mind when the argument is often made that homosexual unions are based on love, and those that are based in love and, and commitment to one another should be celebrated and cherished, especially in the face of so many heterosexual marriages that are filled with strife and often end in divorce. But, friends, we don't build our morality upon experience, but upon submission to God's word. We don't base our morality on, on things that look right to us, sound good to us, we base our morality on what God says. And God says that marriage is not just about loyalty. It is about two becoming one flesh, and that can only happen with a man and a woman. You perhaps have heard of the name Sam Albury. Sam Albury is himself a, a celibate, same-sex-attracted clergyman from the U.K., um, and he's an apologist. He's written on a lot of stuff, but he's written on, on this subject as well. And he has a good reply to an argument like that when people say, well, at least people can be committed and loyal to one another. Isn't that enough? He says, in many areas of life, it's possible to demonstrate good qualities while doing something wrong. 
A thief in a gang may demonstrate impeccable loyalty to his fellow criminals during the act of stealing. For example, looking out for them, protecting them from danger, being sure to give them a generous proportion of the takings. But none of this in any way lessens the immorality of the act of stealing. Activity that is faithful, bring it back to marriage, he says, activity that is faithful and committed is no more permissible than activity that's promiscuous and unfaithful. And so, so far, the blueprint of sexuality that Genesis 1-2 affords is that first, our sexuality does not define us. That's not our identity. It's subservient to being made in the image of God. But God has given us sexuality. That's part of being made in the image of God. And that is to be confined, that desire, in a marital union of a man and a woman. And three, this is so because only a man and a woman can become one flesh. The fourth and final point is the most obvious, though, in terms of the blueprint of human sexuality. Why is it this way? Because only a man and a woman can fulfill the commission given to humanity as image bearers of God, be fruitful and multiply. It's as simple as that. God's blueprint for sexuality includes the reproduction and the raising of children, and that can only take place through the sexual union of a man and a woman. Now, people who hold to a variety of conservative positions are often demeaningly told, just trust the science. I've heard that before, perhaps. Well, this is about as basic as science gets. This is the birds and the bees, right? Only women get pregnant. Only men can get women pregnant. And within the confines of a marital relationship, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Now, if we return to E.J. Dion's question, why draw the line here? Why right here? Uh, one of the answers we could give is that society depends on it. It's, it's important because society depends on it. Society depends on the propagation of humanity, which only happens through heterosexuality. Um, I've used this illustration before, but I wanted to repeat it again because I think it's so instructive for the fact that people do get this when they are forced to get it. Uh, recently, like this past summer, uh, the Supreme Court in Japan banned same-sex marital unions. And that was such a surprise when they did that because Japan is a very secular nation. And who's doing that nowadays? I mean, who is banning same-sex marriage? Why would they do this? Well, what's going on in Japan right now? They're, they're dealing with a very scary population decline. And um, they need more babies, simply put. And so this is how the court defined marriage. They said marriage is a system established by society to protect a relationship between men and women who bear and raise children. They didn't have to put that in there, but they put that part in there because they need more kids or else their society will not be sustained. And so they could not afford to give the stamp of approval on unions that won't repopulate the nation. So, so much for the basic blueprint of biblical sexuality. It's not our identity but it is part of how God's made us. He's given us these desires. It's to be expressed in the marital relationship of a man and a woman. This has to be so because only man and woman can be one flesh and only man and woman can fulfill God's command to his image bearers to be fruitful, multiply. That's the blueprint, but let's finally consider the beauty of biblical sexuality as God has designed it. And what I mean by this is it's one thing to say, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says. And uh, we can get an obedience out of that. 
I hope that that's enough for obedience, but God wants more than obedience. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants us to be affected. That is, for our affections to be for his design. And so I want to offer for you tonight, as you consider this difficult subject, why God's design is not burdensome. In fact, why it's beautiful, why this is a good thing. First, three, I have three points. They should be fairly brief. I'll take that back. We're going to be here for a while. No, I'm just kidding. But three reasons, sorry, three reasons why uh, biblical sexuality is beautiful. First, it's a celebration of diversity. Huh. Do you, what would you think if you said that to the world? That, hey, the reason we, we hold to traditional conservative marriage is because we celebrate diversity. What? No, that's our line, they would think. But this is what I mean. Look at what Adam, how Adam sings in, in verse 23. He bursts into song at finding the one who is, as DeYoung said, it's like him but different in just the right way. I, I believe this is part of being made in the image of a tripersonal God who has for all eternity delighted in the communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. God delights in difference, and he made us to delight in difference too. He built that into us, and sexuality, rightly ordered, longs for the other, not the same, for the other, for the diversity. Not just because we're fascinated with something different, but in this case, because the other actually completes us. And that's what excited Adam. And homosexuality distorts this and perhaps is one of the most explicit examples of Augustine's famous line on what sin is. His Latin phrase, sin is incurvatus and say, which means turned in on oneself. Anytime we sin, we are turned in on ourselves. And is that not actually what's happening in homosexuality, where instead of pursuing the other, we, in this weird and um, twisted way, don't celebrate difference, but pursue more of the same. And a beauty is lost in that. Biblical sexuality is beautiful because it celebrates diversity. Second, biblical sexuality is beautiful because it's selfless and self-giving. You remember what Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, um, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Um, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Um, biblical sexuality in, in, the marriage, in the confines of a marital union should be uh, seen as a, a mutual giving of spouse to spouse. Husbands and wives, I'll speak to you right now. Do you think of sex in that way, a, a selflessness, a self-giving? We rightly speak of sex when we use the phrase sharing intimacy, but that's not often the way the world speaks of sex, and maybe not the way we think of it. Maybe you don't use these terms, but these are the kinds of things you often hear. Uh, you, you hear um, sex talked about in terms of getting some. Right? Or, or the man thinks that she hasn't put out in so long. Or the woman thinks that he has been emotionally unavailable for days. Well, there the beauty again is lost. It doesn't matter if it's a heterosexual union. God's beautiful purpose is lost when we think sex is all about me. Me, 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 getting pleased. A real marriage between a man and a woman that does not with some regularity express their faithfulness through the sharing of sexual intimacy is not fulfilling the biblical idea, idea of marriage or of human sexuality. And so husbands and wives, again, I speak to you quite bluntly, and I say that act, or maybe I should say that non-act of not coming together is a sin and needs to be repented of. 
The beauty of sexuality is best seen when it's not about us, but about the other, and when sex is used as an opportunity to share with our spouse just how much we love them and how committed we are to them. And again, that beauty is lost through the production and the consumption of pornography. Those making it are entirely self-centered. They want to be pleasured. They want to make money. But those consuming, likewise, remove the beauty of the selflessness and sexuality and instead seek self-pleasure. Our sexuality, by God's design, means pleasure. You don't, we don't need to be prudes about it. That's, we can say that. God gave us sexuality for pleasure, but he never gave it to us for self-pleasure. And that's what pornography thrives off of, and that's ugly. And it is an ugliness that just based on statistics, the majority of us in this room have dabbled with. And again, that must be repented of. Okay, finally, biblical sexuality is beautiful because it shows us the gospel. It's beautiful because it celebrates diversity. It's beautiful because it's selfless and self-giving. It's beautiful because it shows us the gospel. It expresses the gospel in a tangible way, a physical way, almost sacramental-like. Paul says in Ephesians 5, quoting again from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that one flesh language, and he says, I don't really understand what this is all about. It's a profound mystery, but I know one thing. It is about Christ and how much he loves the church. We experience the gospel through our human sexuality. The one enfleshment of two different but complementary parties is fulfilled in the union of Jesus to his people, the church. And that's a beautiful thing that the Christian couple can celebrate and be reminded of every time they share in sexual intimacy. But now I want to say a word to those tonight who feel they cannot partake of God's um, outlet of sexual desire uh, through the design of, um, of marriage. Because maybe you're single. Maybe a widow. Maybe you feel a sinful desire towards the same sex. Maybe you are married and you find yourself drawn to someone other than your spouse. Maybe you're married and your spouse actually has no interest in you, no physical interest in you, and therefore you're incapable of finding an appropriate outlet for your sexual desires. And maybe tonight, if, if that's you, if, if you fit into one of those categories, you're wondering, well, you've just said the gospel or sexuality is beautiful because it shows us the gospel. Can I receive the gospel in any way with my sexuality in this case? You know, with, if I have a, a, a distant spouse closed off from me or, or if I feel uh, um, a, a twisted, inordinate sin that I, I can't act on, if I'm not married, is there any way for me to experience the, the gospel? Is there any beauty in it for me? If not, well, then there would be very le- little reason for you to deny the draw of sin's pleasure. But I do believe there's beauty in it for you. Because I don't think that what Paul says in Ephesians 5 is the only way we can experience the love of Christ or the reality of Christ or the the power of the gospel in our sexuality. Yes, in giving ourselves to our spouse, we experience it, but there is another way. And here it is. Not just in giving ourselves to our spouse, but in giving ourselves up to God. Shortly before his death, Jesus is with his friends in the upper room. And he looked to them and he said, this is my body. 
which is for you. The Son of God gave his body for us, and he calls us to give his body, or give our bodies to him. Romans 12, 1, therefore, by the mercies of God, Paul says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. When you say no, friends, to to disordered desire, whether that's homosexual desire, or premarital desire, or extramarital desire, or self-desire, when you say no to those desires and instead deliver your body up to God, something beautiful is happening because by refusing your sexual urges, you're using your sexuality to glorify God and to experience Christ and to share with him in that profound statement, this is my body which is for you. God calls us to give our bodies and our sexuality to him as a sacrifice. And the only way we will do that is by seeing that he has first, in the person of his son, given his body for us. And a sinless body, mind you. Tempted in every way as us, tempted in his sexuality. Yes, again, we don't need to be prudes about this. Hebrews says he is tempted like us in every way. That includes sexual temptation, but without sin. So that perfect body was given up to save you, to save me, to save me from my sexual sins, which damn me to hell. And so, remember, we all have them, these sexual sins. Don't let your heterosexuality give you a sense of false security as though you're not a sexual sinner. Jesus says, I say everyone who looks on a woman and, and lusts after in her heart is committed adultery. E.J. Dion, in that previously mentioned article, uh, he makes a point. I don't think it's entirely inaccurate. I don't think it's entirely accurate either. But he says that Christian conservatives um, seem to be selective in the sins that they get up in arms about. This is what he says, quote, We do not see the same ferocious response to adultery as we do same-sex relationships. Many Christians in large numbers were happy to put aside their moral qualms and vote twice for a serial adulterer. Why the selective forgiveness? Why, call to, why the call to boycott only this one perceived sin, referring to homosexual marriage? And I just want to say, of course, if there's any... Any part of that statement that is accurate in which we boycott one sin but not another, we need to repent of that. We're all sexual sinners, and we all need forgiveness. That, 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 that need to, to give up ourselves and to repent, that's not a call just for a, a certain class of sexual sinner. It's for all of you here tonight. Those of us who do not struggle with those types of sins that we've been mentioning need to begin at a place of humility when considering the sins of others, or else we'll not be able to love them. We'll not be able to love them. Chris Gordon concludes his New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. I hope you have a copy of that. came out earlier this year, and we have a bunch down the library. They're free, very helpful. 41 questions. This is how he ends on question 41. Question, how do we love those who live in sexual sin? who live in it, right? Not just who have sexual sin, but those who who find their identity in it. Answer, we should not avoid them. We should not shun those who are mastered by sexual sin. Instead, we should speak the truth and love about sexual sin, repentance, and faith in Christ. We should give witness to the deliverance God gave us from our own sins and perform acts of kindness 
And by our godly living, we should seek to win over our neighbors to Christ. So don't let your heterosexuality give you a sense of false security, nor, brother or sister, let your homosexuality give you a sense of despair. Christ saves to the uttermost. There is no sin, there is no perversion that is beyond his power to save and to transform. There is no addiction that is beyond the curative power of this promise. This is my body, which is for you. And when he gives his body for you, that actually does something, and it does two things, and we will close with this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When God, in the person of Jesus Christ, gives up his body for us because of the sins we've committed in the body, it actually does something. And it does two things I want to suggest to you. The first is that it will change you. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Where's the emphasis in that sentence, do you think? It's not the you. It's the were. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When he gives himself up for us, we are changed. That is good news for sexual sinners like us tonight. It changes us. But second, and this is so important, it doesn't only change us, it charges us. There is a charge, a call upon us. Look at verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Because Christ gave his body to save you from the sins you commit with yours, know that he is transforming you to be more like his glorious body. And so, because of that, live for him. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to accept the difficult portions of your word and to live in light of them even in a world that hates and rejects these things that we've discussed. Do give us a sense of the beauty of um, the design that you have for sexuality. Give us a sense that this is good for us and help us in whatever um, way in which we've been called in this life, whatever our station is, if we're uh, married or or single, if we have uh, certain lusts or if we're drawn to certain sins, wherever we are, would we heed this call to glorify you in our bodies? Would we, O God, be ready and willing to share in the sufferings of Christ by giving up our desires for your sake? Lord, that is a difficult thing to imagine, but you are ready to change us, and you will change us if we look in faith to you. We ask that you would bless us now as we contemplate your word. Would it take root in our hearts, and indeed, would we be changed? Amen.